Well, good morning again. So excited to be here with you all today. I don't know if Peter mentioned it. I'm the lead pastor of Mosaic Church uh, in Northwest Austin, sort of a crucial detail, but that's all right. Uh, I, I, all good. Uh, my background is, of course, also in the Every Nation world. Uh, I've been doing campus ministry for quite a long time. Uh, I uh, grew up in the Dallas area, uh, went to college. Yeah, come on, Irving, Texas, Irving High School. Uh, there you go. Uh, anybody from Irving here? Okay, all right. Yeah, Irving? Come on, you from Irving? Where'd you go to high school? Oh, yeah, you moved out, all right. Yeah, not an uncommon story. Uh, but anyway, uh, then I went to college at University of Houston where I encountered Jesus and uh, became a Christian there through Every Nation Campus and graduated, went into vocational ministry in the campus ministry world uh, at U of H and then primarily at UT Austin. Uh, as Peter referenced, I did some work here in San Marcos helping to get this campus group going at Texas State and then did some stuff at A&M for a while. Uh, for a couple of years, I was the national director of Every Nation Campus. I moved to Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, during that time, I collected some humans around me, uh, my wife, Carrie, being the, the best one of all, and we've been married for 17 years. She and I have four children together. I have three boys. Uh, one's going to be a freshman in high school. I've got two middle schoolers, and then my baby girl, uh, who's nine, and so thank God for the one girl. Uh, they're the best of all, aren't they, Peter? So that's right, as you know. Uh, so they're uh, doing their thing today in Austin and um, in, in church there. Mosaic Church brings you their greetings. Oh, my, that last bit of my story, I've been the lead pastor. Uh, at Mosaic for about the last eight and a half years, and we've seen God do amazing things there and really grow our church, and uh, very honored to be here with you all today with Peter and Elisa and their tremendous family who, who really love Jesus and have sacrificed so much for all of you and for all of us, and I'm so thrilled about where this church is and where it's going and where, what God has for it, and I'm honored to, uh, to preach to you today. So uh, our church in Austin is going through this series with you. I think Peter's mentioned that, and so we'll be moving through uh, the book of Revelation, and I'm going to begin with our scripture reading. I'd like to ask you all to stand on your feet as we read the Word of God together. This is Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 22. Here we go. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they're not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. 
Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. Would you be seated? Father, would you give us grace now as we encounter you in your word? Uh, as you can see, we're looking at the book of Revelation, and today, uh, as you can see, we're, we're looking at a series of letters uh, that are given, actually, from Jesus to the churches. Now, I hope that's, that's sort of fascinating to you, because, you know, in the New Testament, there's all kinds of letters given by different people, like, you know, Peter, uh, James, John, they, they write letters, but here, in Revelation, we've actually got letters from Jesus straight to the churches, to these seven churches in what's now Western Turkey. And what's really, I think, incredible about this is that while one church, or each church, gets one letter, in a way, all the churches get all the letters. And what I mean is what's written for one is helpful for all. And you can see that from the the closing words Jesus gives to each church. He says in verse 22, he says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to who? Come on, the church is right. In other words, he's saying, what I'm saying to one, I'm saying for all. And what he's saying to this group of Christians has meaning, therefore, for all groups of Christians. Another way of putting it would be, what Jesus said to them then is still for us today. And if we'll see it like that, which we should, what it yields for us is quite a lot. So what are we going to see today in these letters to the churches? We're going to see three things primarily. First, we're going to see what Jesus loves. We're going to see what Jesus hates. Don't get scared of that. We'll come back to it. And third, how we can be even more of what he loves. So what he loves, what he hates, and how we can be more of what he loves. You guys ready? Here we go. Number one, let's take a look at what Jesus loves. Now, a moment ago, uh, we read from those two letters in chapter three. They're the final two letters. Uh, The first one was the next to last letter written. I don't know if you caught it. It was written to the church. Where did you catch it? Yeah, it's like West Philadelphia, right? Born and raised. The playgrounds where they spent most of their days. Yeah, Max and relaxing. Sorry. I couldn't help it. I just betray my Gen X background. It was way too easy. So yes, thank you. Uh, I feel at home already. It's the church in Philadelphia. And again, what's interesting about this is while in contrast to the other six letters, which all have something negative or critique in them, here, it's all good, man. It's all good. There's no critique, just encouragement. So what was going on here then In this church that Jesus loved, or another way of putting it would be to ask, what are the marks of a church that Jesus loves? What will Jesus, have you ever wondered that? What would Jesus say uh, he loves in a church? Would it be like, you know, the really excellent parking? Or maybe the great, you know, preacher? Or, you know, kids facility? What will he say? What are the marks of a church that Jesus loves? We're going to take a look at three. First, uh, the first mark, I'll put it like this, the first mark of a church Jesus loves is radical exclusivity. Now we got a, mm, no, not general, not really amens for that one. That's okay. Makes you a little nervous. Uh, I hope you like the next bit in just a moment. All right. But take a look at this verse. It says, he says, you have, Jesus says, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, he's preaching to a group of Christians who were under, uh, of course, threat and pain of death in the Roman Empire. These early Christians were being pressured to recant their faith 
or else. They were being pressured to recant their belief, their exclusive claim that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and the only way to God, but they didn't recant. They did not give up that claim. They refused to back down. And for that exclusive claim, Jesus says, I see you, I honor you. Now, Maybe you're here today and you're a skeptic and a friend brought you, so glad you're here. Maybe you're from another faith background. And listen, if that's you, skeptic, you know, another faith background, I get it. That the claims, the exclusive claims of Christianity are sometimes really hard to take, aren't they? They're hard to hear. For example, I mean, it's hard for me sometimes when I hear other people give exclusive truth claims. And when I hear Muslims, for example, say that Jesus Christ is not the Son of God, that exclusive claim is hard to hear. Or when Buddhists make their exclusive claim that God is essentially unknowable, or when Hindus make the exclusive claim that there's really millions, if not more, gods to be worshipped, or when atheists make the exclusive claim that there is no God at all sometimes, those claims can be hard to hear. And yet, consider this. Every community makes exclusive truth claims. That's what makes it a community. Right. Now, just because someone makes a truth claim doesn't mean they're right or correct or true, but they've still got the right to make it. Every community makes exclusive claims. So if you're here uh, and you're really skeptical or you're nervous about Christians making exclusive claims, you should. And I say this super respectfully uh, as the guy with the mic. You should consider the very real hypocrisy of making the exclusive claim that exclusive claims are bad. Right. Exclusivity is just how any community works, including yours, including ours. But, but, but. More than that, more than that, for the Christian person, Revelation 3 is showing you that the exclusive claim that Jesus Christ is the only way to God is actually what brings the blessing of God on a church. In the U.S. today, and maybe you've seen this, maybe you've read all the stats and the stories you've even seen in the newspapers, like the demise of the Christian church is widely predicted. You guys read that, those stats and surveys, USA Today News, like it's scheduled for next Tuesday, right? The church is ending, it's so bad. It's all going away, it's going to end next Saturday. Now, while I'm not saying that everything is fine, what I am saying is you actually have to read, in the same way you'd kind of you know, buy a car, you'd have to read the fine print to understand what those surveys mean, who's being uh, you know, surveyed, and what's going on. And the point is this, the vast majority of those leaving churches are those who are leaving churches who do not make the radically exclusive claim that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The majority of people who are leaving are leaving, by and large, mainline churches who have let go of the word and the name, right? Let go of the word and the name. Let go of those, uh, those who have let go of the authority of Scripture and the exclusive person of Jesus. But by contrast, studies also show that churches who are at least maintaining steady, and especially those who are growing, are the churches who are doing the two things this church in Philadelphia was commended for. They are hanging on to the word And the name, they're keeping those two things. So the question for any group of people is this. Will you, will we, will we keep the word? Will we keep the name? See, many times we think churches think, churches are pressured. They think if we just let go of the scriptures, if we'll let go of the exclusive claim of Jesus, we'll be more relevant. That's the way we'll make our churches grow. Oh, oh, but can you see this is actually the opposite? Those studies show you the opposite. It's actually the opposite because after all, if there's nothing different about us, 
if we don't believe any different than any other group, anything else different than our culture, if we're just like everyone else, then why bother coming at all? If we're just another social group doing the same things, believing the same things, why do we bother gathering at all? A radically exclusive church, that is, a church that holds of the word, holds of the name, is a church that Jesus loves. Second mark, though, there's a tension here, as you'll see. There's also, at the same time, radical inclusivity. Radical inclusivity, and maybe some of you are getting a little more comfortable with that word. All right, it's a big one in our culture. Uh, Look at verse 9. He says, I will make those who are, let me unpack it for you in a second, those who are the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they're not, but are liars, I'll make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. What's this? Well, this is Jesus saying, yes, 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 there are people in your culture who have hurt you uh, they've marginalized you because of your faith they've persecuted you they're liars they're not the good people and i'm going to bring them into your church you're welcome you're welcome it's my gift to you says jesus you know in other words people from different ethnic backgrounds right in this case jews different faith systems jesus says they're going to be part of my church that i'm building as well now, there's an, uh, an African history professor at Yale University, brilliant dude named Laman Sana. You should all read this book. It's called Whose Religion is Christianity, the Gospel Beyond the West? And in it, he makes the case that Christianity is far and away the most inclusive faith system the world has ever known. And he points out an obvious contrast between Christianity and every other faith system, which is that every other faith system, no matter how old it is, always has a cultural center it has never been able to get beyond. Take, for example, Islam. 96% of all Muslims today live in the Middle East, North Africa, South Asia. In other words, 96% live where their faith began. Same goes for Buddhists. Almost 90% of them live in East Asia. 98% of Hindus live in India, South Asia. Oh, but when you get to Christianity... It's something totally different. You have something that has no cultural center. It spans the globe. Yes, it began in the Middle East. But how many of us think of Christianity as as something from the Middle East? No, none of us do. Why? Because it's migrated Europe, then North America, South America. Today it's exploding in Africa. Again, in Asia, Uh, South Korea, for example, has become 50% Christian. In the last 100 years, China is on its way. China is on its way to doing the same. 25% of all Christians, Central, South America, come on, Caribbean folks, that's for you too right there. 22% of Christians in Africa, 15% in Asia, and only 12% of the body of Christ is in North America. So Laman Sana asked the question, I'll ask you, whose religion is it? Whose faith is it? See, it's Everyone's. Why? Because it's not built, can you see, around an exclusive culture or exclusively one language, but around an inclusive person who said, if anyone is hungry, let him come to me. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. Third mark of a church that Jesus loves. Now, also, we'll put it like this, is a radical mission, radical inclusivity, exclusivity, and mission. Watch this. Well, if you notice, of course, in the passage, all this talk about doors, it's like door open, door shut, revolving door, like it's like that, you know, Will Ferrell and Elf, right? He keeps open door, come around the carousel, all that, but he's talking about doors here, and Jesus says, see, look, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Now, what's this? Philadelphia, the city, was designed by location, by infrastructure to be the doorway 
to the world. Uh, it was built on the edge of the Roman Empire. Uh, the main highway of the Roman Empire ran through it. And so it was set there and designed to be a missionary city for Greco-Roman culture. That's why it was built. So Jesus is saying to them, hey, you know that, that, that door, that doorway everybody's talking about? That's for you. That's for my church. What they built it for, in reality, it was built for me. You've got an open door to take me to the world to go on mission. Now, I had a, a conversation uh, recently with the, the, the man up in Austin who was running for state congress, uh, for our state representative, and he had been out in the community, uh, he'd been campaigning, and he, he ran across this group of folks from our church, from Mosaic, uh, in a neighborhood, and this, there was this ethnically diverse group of people, and so he was wondering what could, you know, sort of keep and hold all these people together. And so he asked them, you know, what's up? And so they said, you should call the church. So he did. He looked this up on the website. And he called the church and left a message. And so I called him back and uh, he said he wanted to meet. And so, okay. And so we, we got together and met. And I said, why in the world would you, you know, want to come and visit little old us? And he said, well, it's just beginning to dawn on me the kind of good that churches can do in the community. And I said, well, that's certainly true, sir. Yes. And he asked about the kind of things that we do in our church. And I began to talk to him about the more than a decade of time we've spent caring for orphans in San Luis Potosi, Mexico, which was remarkable because, as it turns out, he had been to San Luis Potosi, Mexico many times. And so we talked about both the beauty and the poverty of the city. And then I began to talk to him about all our efforts to love and serve the homeless in North Austin, about all the things we do to care for at-risk kids and local elementary and junior high students, how we been the partner of the year for the district for, for many years, how we care for students and on our campus and how we facilitate conversations on race and culture and diversity in our church. And he said, wow. And I said, I know, wow, you know, it's really great. And, and I said, hey, I said, do you know something? He said, what? I asked him about this. I said, if suddenly, I said, if all the churches in Austin went away, by all the churches, I know almost every pastor up and down this corridor, if we all went away, I said, what do you think would happen to all the good that churches do. He said, if we all went away, I think, you know, maybe it's possible some of it would get dispersed, right? Maybe some individuals picking up this or that. But I said, I think it's far more likely that almost none of it would continue. It would almost all go away. So I said, I asked him, I said, do you know why we do the things that we do? He said, no, I have no idea. I looked at him and said, I said, we do this because we're commanded to. We're commanded to. And when you have at the center of your mission a man who dies for his enemies, who gives away what he has on behalf of those who do not have, I said, that's just going to shape your mission. That's going to change how you function in the world and in the city. I said, we don't just do this because we're nice people, although I think we're pretty nice. You know, we're kind of nice. You guys look nice. You look nice today. I said, we do this because we have been commanded. And that's different. And he said, I've never really heard it put like that before. See, an authentic church is one that has a radical mission. So let me just share with you a bit of what our mission is at Mosaic in Austin. So you know where I'm coming from. We are, at our church, we're on a mission to change the city and even to change the way that people view church. Because I don't think our city needs just another church, although I'm so grateful for every church that's begun, every church that's planted. Uh, I think the city needs another kind of church, a church that isn't politically liberal or politically conservative, but one that 
that's politically engaged, a church that's socially conscious and expresses the gospel in both word and deed, a church that's intentionally diverse, a church that has a plurality of leadership to model something for the congregation, a church that loves both the grace of God and the holiness of God, a church that doesn't say its focus is either going to be the unchurched people or the church people, but a church that is a home for both, a church that is both passionate and deep, so you don't have to check either your emotions or your brain at the door. A church that has the fireplace of church history with the fire of the Holy Spirit in it. A church that's current, oh, but it's not current events driven because it has its eye on the eternal. See, not just another church, but another kind of church. That's our mission. Now, there they are. Radical exclusivity, radical inclusivity, radical mission, three marks of a church that Jesus loves, and dare I say it, the marks of a church that loves Jesus. So, other things here in the passage for sure, endurance, faithfulness, all committed, but these three stand out for us today. He who has an ear, let him hear, let her hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Second, let's take a look, flip it now to sort of the dark side here. Let's see what Jesus hates. And oh, here we go. All right, it's going to be okay, I promise. Uh, but by contrast, again, to every other letter, which includes something good, healthy, positive, here it's only bad. Uh-oh. And if you're thrown, by the way, by that word, uh, hate there, what Jesus hates, look, you hate stuff that's wrong, right? You hate stuff that hurts other people, hurts you. You hate stuff that breaks the world. So let's not deny Jesus the emotional space that we demand for ourselves. Okay, all right. But here, Jesus hates something so much, and this thing that he hates is so pervasive, it's so taken over the church in Laodicea that Jesus has got to talk about it. But what I want you to see as we get into this is that while Jesus, yes, he hates this thing, he actually is moving here in an incredible way. He's like a a doctor who cares for a patient, who moves in to to do incisive surgery. See, Jesus here is going to act like the great physician, He's going to diagnose the cancer and then prescribe the cure. So what's the one thing Jesus hates above all? Here it is. In a word, it's this word, lukewarmness. Lukewarmness. All right, let's look at this, verse 15. He says, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other, but because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, there it is again, I'm about to spit you, literally vomit you out of my mouth. So what is this? What's spiritual lukewarmness? Well, the opposite of it uh, is given in verse 19 where Jesus says, so be earnest and repent. So he desires for us to be earnest, but that's that's kind of a wishy-washy word. It doesn't quite get it, and that's true because the word earnest in the Greek is the word zeloo, where we get our word zealous, where we get our word zealous. In other words, the opposite of lukewarmness is zeal for God. And you say, okay, that makes sense. Oh, but it's more than that. Because this word zeloo is actually translated far more times as the word jealous in English. In the New Testament, it's translated as jealous. So you're saying, well, that's kind of weird, right? Jesus is saying, I want you to be jealous. Isn't that like a bad thing, right? You're supposed to repent of that, but think about it. Oh, what's jealousy at its core? Jealousy at its core, I think, is something you feel 
when something explodes on the inside of you and you just want that thing, right? It's like when you go on social media, uh, Facebook or Instagram, and you see your friends and they're on vacation again, right? And they're posting pictures again of that other trip. And you think, how many times in a calendar year can those people possibly go on vacation? You just want that, right? Or maybe somebody got that promotion at work and maybe probably it should have been you, but it wasn't. And they got that and you think, I just want that. Or your friend got married and it probably, yeah, should have, should have, should have been you, but you were just the bridesmaid or just the, the, uh, you know, groomsman yet again. And you think I just want that, right? That's what jealousy is at, at its core. And that's what Jesus is saying in a way he's after in a relationship with you, right? There's fire, uh, heat, passion, jealousy for God to want him more than anything. And so when something tries to come into your life or heart that seeks to diminish your passion or steal your zeal from him, see, in the same way that a, that a husband or some of you wives would move against someone trying to take your spouse away, that's what he's saying. I want you to do for me. See, if someone tries to move in on, carry on, on my wife, let me just tell you what's going to happen. Oh, oh, you're going to get all 165 pounds of power coming right at you, right? I mean, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself, right? See, see, that's what Jesus is saying. A heart that's hot for him looks like. Zeal for him moves against something else trying to take his place. And now you're saying, well, I get that, right? That, that makes sense. But what about the other bit? What about the cold bit? He said he would rather have us be cold, right? Or hot than, than lukewarm. What does that mean? Well, here's what I think. I, after doing campus ministry like some of you for many years, here's what I know. Here's what I believe. I would rather go out on campus and share my faith, talk about Jesus with someone who's a total skeptic, totally doesn't believe, think Christianity is like a sham or a scam or a fraud or pointless, rather than someone who's just been raised in church, who just sort of comes and sits and, I don't know, shrugs their shoulders, right? Rather, they go on home. They think, I would rather, you know, watch TV on Sundays than be with the people of God. They think, oh, you know, I'm not, at least I'm not that crazy church where they raise their hands, right? With those crazy people. Now, I'm respectable. See, people like that in that position, they, they're just shrugging. At Jesus. But if you're cold, in a way you're actually closer to Jesus, and here's why. It's because you have a more authentic reaction to who he is. Right? See, because you're seeing him for who he is, you realize, oh, he's, he has this exclusive claim, right, over all of your life. He demands everything of you as Lord, Master, Boss, God of the whole world. And so you say, I don't want that. And see, that's how people responded to him when he walked the earth. They were cold or hot, but no one was indifferent. No one was indifferent. They loved him, or they hated him, but no one shrugged. That's why they killed him. They didn't just say, oh, you could go on your way, Jesus. No, we hate you so much. We've got to put you to death. See, it's indifference to Jesus, the shrugging at Jesus more than anything that kills your faith and that will kill a church in the end. No one knew this better, by the way, I think, than Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who also, from jail and from prison, like the author of this, John, wrote a letter to churches in his day. He wrote a letter called Letter from Birmingham Jail, and Dr. King talked about the debilitating effects of lukewarmness on churches and on Christians. In 1963, he wrote this, and I think we should have this 
on the screen for you. He said, quote, he said, I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. He goes on to say there was a time when the church was very powerful, in the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed, immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But the Christians pressed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven called to obey God rather than man. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too, look at this, God-intoxicated, zealous, jealous, to be astronomically intimidated. By their effort and example, they brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contests. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Every day I meet young people whose disappointment with the church has turned into outright disgust. Now that's hard to hear, but let me just apply this then in one way. Some, some of you here, I know you're your parents, you got, you got children, and I know you want your, your children to serve God. But do you know what almost guarantees they won't? It's if you are lukewarm. If you're lukewarm, right? Your refusal to stand up for the least of these, your refusal to condemn racism in our culture, right? Now you understand, Jesus, he's not just for you to come bring your kids to keep them off drugs. To keep them from getting pregnant before they're married. No, Jesus is for you. He's for you and me. So what keeps them? What keeps a person lukewarm? Jesus tells you, verse 17. He says, you say, oh, I'm rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize, he writes, you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. The city of Laodicea was one of the wealthiest cities in its day. It was so wealthy, actually, that in 60 AD, a a massive earthquake rocked the surrounding region. And every other city applied for and received financial aid from the Roman Empire. Every city except for Laodicea. They saved themselves because of their wealth. And that's what they began to call themselves, their own savior. But Jesus is saying here, there's a massive gap between how you see yourselves and how I see you. You know, one of the blessings of being a part of a global spiritual family like every nation is the access I get to pastors and missionaries from all over the world. And do you know what they're they're always astonished by when they come to the U.S.? Two things. First of all, It's the prayerlessness in Christians' lives. Prayerlessness. And second, it's the extent to which Americans spend their money on themselves, kids, families, clothes, cars, vacations. It's astounding. You say, are you talking to me? (laughs) Maybe. But I'm as much talking to me as well. 
my church as well, my own heart as well. You say, this is offensive. Oh, don't you think it was offensive to them, right? Offensive to them. A vast gap between where they saw themselves, where they actually were. And Jesus says, in that gap is your wealth. It's your money. Jesus said, it's, it's actually easier for a camel to go through a needle than it is for a rich person to inherit the kingdom of God. A way of putting it would be, it's easier to fit a 747 jet in your garage than it is for a rich person to act like a Christian. Don't you see, in a way, today we're living in a way in Laodicea, first world nation, United States, Texas, see. Then he's saying the way you see yourself, even the way you use your money, the degree to which you keep your distance from my people, that nauseates me. It makes me want to spit you out of my mouth. Now, that's tough and hard to hear, but, oh, but, don't go away. You liked that bit earlier, right? You liked that? You were clapping a bit ago. Now you like that part. Just hang on a In the middle of their offense, maybe yours now, what I want you to see is actually, though, how much Jesus still loved them. Look at this. He doesn't say, those whom I hate, I just drop kick to the goalposts of life. He says, those whom I love, I rebuke and I discipline. See, he loved them. He loves you. He loves us. He loves this church. And in the middle of this searing challenge, it actually comes one of the most incredible words of comfort given in all the Bible. And what he says next shows them, shows us how we can be cured of maybe our condition too. Number three, he shows us how we can become more of what he loves. Verse 20, he says this, Here I am, he says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come and I'll eat with them and they with me. Oh, he's saying, just when you think he's going to say, oh, I'm going to keep my distance from you. I'm going to turn my back on you and go. He says, no, I'm not through with you. I actually want to come in with you. See, table fellowship eating was the height of personal relationship. It was the height of personal cultural intimacy and he said oh i want that with you he said i want to come in with you eat with you be with you speak to you love you right now how do you get that he gives us four brief metaphors verse 18 he says i counsel you to buy from me gold so you can become rich gold from the fire jesus is saying you've got to make him your wealth You see that? Your wealth. Got to make Jesus your riches. And do you know how you can do that? Why you can do that? It's because he made you his treasure. He made you his riches. He went into the fire for you, for you. He says, I want you to buy for me white clothes to wear. You can cover your shame. Listen, the white white was the color of victory in Roman culture. What Jesus is saying is you can have victory over shame today. Victory over whatever you've done. Victory to cover and free you from your shame, the way you've lived. Maybe what you did even last night, right? Do you know why you can get that? Oh, it's because he was stripped naked for you. He lost his clothing. He was shamed. Oh, what have you done? It's made you ashamed. He's saying, my nakedness can cover yours now. See, 
he says, I want you to have salve on your eyes so you can see. Laodicea was a, was a medical center known for its eye doctors, the eye salve that they made. He said, oh, but I can give you that in greater measure. Oh, and if you're today, if you're feeling like the light is coming on, let me tell you, right now, just go all the way. Say, Jesus, help me to see you. Would you flood my heart with your light? Because he was blinded for you right on the way to the cross. He was blindfolded. They struck him saying, oh, Christ, prophesy. They mocked him. Who hit you? He was blinded so we can see and lastly he says if you want to know me he says if you're hearing my voice all you've got to do in a way turn the handle open the door of anyone anyone not from that culture not from that socioeconomic background not rich poor black white brown anyone hears my voice opens the door i'll come in with them where are you today with jesus have you opened the door to him he promises right now in this moment he can meet you and us and our lives can be changed if anyone has an ear let him or her hear what the spirit says to the churches amen let me pray for you church let me minister i hope god's word to you